How are you? Good evening, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here and to continue the conversation about history. And uh, let me just tee off real quickly uh, so the, the viewers know what the subject is today. Um, normally we talk about presidents and we talk about laws. And why is that? Because in my spare time I have a history blog, and I blog about the <coughs> blog is statutesandstories.com, and we talk about American history through laws, presidents, etc. Uh, but today we're going to spend an entire hour talking about a single trial in the year 1800. And uh, let me start off with a question for everybody. Why in a million years do we think we could take an entire hour to talk about a legal case from the year 1800. So, uh, by the way, I, I forwarded to some of you before the before the discussion, and I normally like to post things on the website prior to our discussions, but because there is such a volume of good information, I haven't been able to finish the blog. So it'll go live in the next day or two. <clears throat> but I'm throwing out to you, why, let's speculate, why would we want to spend an hour talking about a case which is over 200 years old? Why in a million years would someone want to do that? I would say it's because you were reading my book and you're completely bored and you wanted to change the subject. Well, I, I would disagree with that. <laughs> but, uh, I, I am reading your book. Look at uh, uh, Ed Vidal. He's got he's he's got this face on. I'm telling you, he's changed. You should see how he's looking. And he, he he hasn't even taken care of his "Make America Great Again" hat. It's all grungy. It's got oil stains on it, food stains, everything. It's been through the wars. It's been through the wars. But go ahead and answer your own question. Yeah, he wasn't he the district attorney here in South Florida? Correct. He was a federal prosecutor. Federal, federal prosecutor. Yeah, federal district attorney, correct? So he has studied this case, and he's written about it. Uh, I'll later on point out the name of uh, Kendall Coffey's book, but uh, he, among others, have pointed to this case as being important for a bunch of reasons. So uh, well, let's get to the, and in fact, he makes the point that uh, never in the course of American history, you could argue, has such a qualified, high-profile a successful team of lawyers focused on a single case, and it's a murder case that we're going to be talking about. So the lawyers, and we've just answered the question, Alexander Hamilton in the year 1800 defends, uh, signs up to defend the, the criminal defendant. In this case, his name is Levi Weeks, so this is the Levi Weeks case. The second attorney who works with Hamilton is going to be Aaron Burr. So the two of them, and they're famous for, for what reason, the people associate them not getting along with one another. Because they, they're, they're yeah, both from the... And Burr killed Hamilton. That's right. Killed Hamilton. But the two of them work together in this case in the year they didn't the third know. attorney who represents the defendant is uh, Brock Holt Livingston, and um, 
me just throw out to you, remind me when we have 15 minutes left, because I'm going to go through a postscript of the interesting things that happened after the case. So you have to give me 15 minutes and give me that reminder so we'll be able to carry on okay. some of the things that happened after the case. So let's put that, uh, that, that timer on, so to speak. So who is Brock Holt Livingston? And uh, long story short, he is a very uh, prominent lawyer as well, and we'll talk about him later. So these are the three lawyers of the legal dream team. In fact, I would argue uh, that this was the first dream team of lawyers in a murder case. I would dispute that. Okay, continue. Did you want to mention other cases? No, 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 no. I'm just, I'm just being a, I'm just being a pinhead. Okay, go ahead. What's the famous dream team in the 1990s? Let's go back to, let's see, 1992 time frame. Johnny oh. Cochran. Who else? Uh, Dershowitz. Dershowitz. So that's the O.J. Simpson case. Right? That's right. This is the O.J. Simpson case. It's not a civil rights case. It's a murder. And case. Bailey. What was his no. name? Uh, no, he wasn't in the O.J. Simpson. Yeah, they were all there. Really? What was the other? Ba- what was Bailey's first uh, full name? Effley, um, Effley, Bailey, wasn't he on the on the OJ case too? So I'm going to try to convince you and make the point today that the case in 1800, the Levi Weeks case that we're going to be talking about, was the OJ Simpson case of its day on steroids. Whoa, that's the that's a huge one. Sorry. So uh, what else can I tell you as we get started? <clears throat> that uh, I mentioned some of the books I'll be referring to because I don't make this up, and eventually this will all be posted on the website statutesandstories.com, so people can listen to it with the podcasting on the WSQF website, and you can read about it. The other thing I want to mention up, up front is that the, where do we get these primary sources from? How do, I, how do you know that I'm not making this up? And the answer is that historians like to look at documents that are tangible, that were written in the time period. That's a primary source. And this is the first case in American history that was fully transcribed. So we know every question that was asked of the witnesses. We know the answers from the witnesses. We know the instructions from the judge. So we have a very detailed, intricate transcript. So, you know, people are going to have a link and you can read it for yourself if you have nothing better to do. We also are going to be referring to, and I tracked down, because I had a couple weeks off and I've been working on various projects, but I tracked down newspaper articles from the year 1800 and the death occurred in 1799. So newspaper articles that talk about the murder and the mystery, and we'll give some of the facts. So when you go to the website, you'll be able to, how often do you get to read a newspaper article from the year 1800 and the trial of the century? Uh, So that's that's, uh, what we're going to be talking about tonight. So in other words, there were some serious implications that uh, I guess reverberated throughout society as a result of the uh, the the case. Is that so it? Who was the the victim and who was the accused? That's a great way to start off, and I'm agreeing with Manny that um, I'm going to make the point today, and we'll see if you agree with me that this case has repercussions later on. And uh, I'll also I'll have uh, Henry Cabot Lodge make the case for me. He was a senator from Massachusetts, a Republican, by the way. Yeah, the last one. <laughs> Nixon, no, he, no, no, Edward Brooke came after him. But he was Nixon's VP in 1960, VP candidate. And then he was made ambassador to Vietnam, where he screwed it up by uh, organizing a coup against Diem. Yeah, but I think you're talking about his father, who was also— no, Henry Cabot Lodge, the senator. Yeah, but his father was a more prominent one. Henry Cabot Lodge, who was the Republican leader in the Senate in the 1917 time frame, and the reason we didn't go into the League of Nations. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, because he created the covenant. I'm going to mention it. 
Foundation, and he was a biographer of Hamilton. He was a senator, but he was also a professor, historian. And uh, one of the things that he mentions in some of the books that he wrote, he looks at this case. So it's not just me, and it's not just modern attorneys who look at this case. You know, for the last 200 years, others have have uh, have pointed to this case, and this now gets back to uh, to Ed's point, which is this is the trial of Levi Leeks, and I'm Weeks W E E K S, and Levi spelt his name L E V I L E V I Weeks. He was the defendant. And, uh, and by the way, I should have mentioned that the reason I'm mentioning Henry Cabot Lodge is because it's in my book. That's why. I'm sorry. Because it's in my book, the Fiscal's Cabot Lodge. That's why I call the chapters the Covenants in 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 memory or in honor of the covenant that sabotaged the League of Nations. There you go. So he mentions when he talks about this case of 1800 that um, what does he say? He mentions that one of the reasons to study it is that we can learn about society then and you compare it with society today. So there are all kinds of reasons why it's useful to spend an hour talking about this case. So we know the defendant is Levi Weeks and who is the victim in the case? And this is where it gets kind of sad. But the quick answer is that uh, her name was, and people had different nicknames back then, uh, but she was referred to by her friends as Emma and her name, her full name was Juliana. Some, some places it's spelled with a J, some with a G. Juliana Sands referred to as Emma, Emma by her friend. She's about 22 years old, and uh, for three years she'd lived in New York City. She'd come from the country area uh, where her, her family was based, and uh, she moves into New York City, and she moves in in a boarding house, because if you remember from prior nights, New York City is a rapidly growing city. It was the first capital of the United States after the Revolutionary War. Many of the buildings, about a quarter of the city, was burned down during the Revolutionary War. So there's a housing shortage, and uh, there are people who start these boarding houses and rent them out. And it doesn't mean that uh, you know lots of people were living in boarding houses because there was a shortage of, of housing. And uh, some people would be middle class and even wealthier individuals might be living in a boarding house until they could build their own house, until they could get situated. So it wasn't uncommon for people to live in these boarding houses, which are almost like dormitories. So she comes to New York City in circa 1797-98, and she moves in. Uh, the boarding house that we're going to be talking about is owned by her aunt and uncle, and their last name is, is uh, Ring. They're the Ring family, so it's the Ring Boarding House, R-I-N-G. And uh, what else? There are a bunch of boarders, obviously, who live in this house, in this boarding house. Uh, and Levi Weeks, who is going to be the criminal defendant, is one of the boarders, and he's a carpenter. And his, his apprentice lives in the room with him in the boarding house. So those are two of the men that live in the boarding house. There are other men that live there. There are also other women who live there. So it's a, it's a community that uh, they get food in the morning. I think they get food at night if they want it. And they pay their, their monthly rent. So she's lived there for three years. And uh, then starting in 1797. And then Levi comes to live there in July of 1799 is when he moves in. And again, he is a carpenter, and he lives in in the boarding house with his with his apprentice. Now, is is his motive clearly established at the at the, at the onset of the trial, or does motive his motive established uh, at the end of the trial? It's never because you got off. About motive, and um, let, let me answer it quickly, and then we'll do more detail about motive. But um, motive is a big question mark in this case. And it's going to be very important as we get into some of the details. And I'm not even sure right now what the motive would have been. But let me answer it this way. That's some, and let's, let's give some background about what happened. But uh, prior to the actual trial, so he moves in in 1799 into the boarding house. And then in December... 
December 22nd, uh, her name was Elma again. So Elma goes out for the night, it's around eight o'clock, and the other members of the boarding house, the, the owners, the Ring family, they understood at eight o'clock that she's gonna be leaving to uh, go out with, with, uh, with Levi. The two of them are going on a date, and it is rumored that uh, she's secretly engaged to Levi, and uh, the family who still live in the boarding house, so Mrs. Ring and her aunt and another cousin who live there, uh, think that uh, she's gonna get married and the two of them are leaving to get married, but they never see her leave with with Levi, but they understood because they heard them talking in the, the antechamber, so they overheard them talking. So they think that they're leaving to go out for the night. It's around 8 o'clock. It's a snowy night. Of course, this is New York. It's December, so it's cold. So she leaves at 8, and she doesn't return the next morning. They look for her. They can't find her. And then about a week later, a young boy finds a muff. And what is a muff? Instead of wearing gloves, it wasn't uncommon for women, maybe men too, to put their hands through what, what today is referred to as a muff that uh, keeps your hands warm. It's like a big glove. Okay. So her muff is found in a well. So what do the authorities do? They they run out to the well. They get hooks and uh, however you dredge a well, and they uh, they use poles to see if there's anything in the well. And lo and behold, there's something in the well. So they dredge it up, and there you have her body. So she's in this well, and that occurs. So she goes out and never returns on December 22nd, and this is January 10th. So um, approximately January 10th is when the body is discovered. So, Manny, you asked about motive. So she was going to be going out with Levi Weeks, according to the other members of the boarding house. Uh, she secretly engaged to him. So what would the motive be for her to be found in yeah, this well? She broke up with him. I'm sorry, she broke up, so that's that's one possibility. So some speculate, and what winds up happening, the trial is going to happen in March of the year 1800, and the body is found in January of 1800. And today, how long does it take before someone gets arrested until, until you have a trial? It can take years. So here, uh, he gets, after the body is found, and I'll give the, the story about how that happens, uh, the, the trial is going to happen March 31st is going to be the first day of the trial. So this is moving pretty quickly. And in the time between January when the body is discovered until March when the trial starts, handbills get circulated. And what is a handbill? People would publish and some of them to be sold, some of them were for free. But handbills appear in New York City, sort of stoking the anxiety about how could this happen? This is horrible. This girl is going to get married. And now she's found dead. This is a murder. This is, you know, what's going on with the city of New York? So there's a, there's all kinds of public anticipation and outrage that this innocent young 22-year-old woman, you know, prior to her, her wedding, winds up disappearing like this. And the attention gets focused on Levi Weeks, uh, rightly or wrongly. So here I get to talk about some of the newspaper articles. So we know who the attorneys are that are going to be representing him in March. So let's uh, refer real quickly to one of the things that the defense team does prior to the trial. And I'm going to be citing this on the website. In the Daily Advertiser, this is before the New York Times, before the Washington and the Wall Street Journal, uh, they, they publish in one of the leading newspapers, the Daily Advertiser, uh, their theory. And they, they start pointing out that Levi Leakes does not fit the profile of a murderer since he's, quote, a moral, sober, industrious, and evil man. They point out that in light of the circumstantial evidence here, the public is jumping to conclusions. Only, quote, an unprincipled and unprejudiced voice of an impartial jury should decide the fate. In other words, uh, the, the defense team is trying to counteract this neg negative public attention, which is focusing on Levi Weeks. Uh, and let me talk about Chernow. So what does Chernow describe in this time frame? And Chernow mentions that before the trial even begins, um, what's going on is that the public opinion, he describes this now as in the annals of New York crime, this case is referred to as the Manhattan Well Tragedy. So because of this tragic event, because of uh, what happens with the body, which I'll talk about, uh, there's a local diarist 
someone who writes a diary as a diarist. So a local diary mentions that, quote, scarcely anything else is spoken of at the time because it's become such a big, heated, uh, controversial uh, you know, case. This, 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 so the, the first celebrity trial, the first um, you know, trial of the century, as it was referred. And uh, what's going on is that, let me see if I can get some quotes on this. Um, what, what Chernev believes is that what's wind up happening here is that the, the, the public opinion convicts Weeks. He's assumed, this is the quote, he's assumed because of this vengeful mood of, of a witch hunt and that he's tried to convict it in the court of public opinion without any due process before the trial. So Kind of like our president. So there's a media circus that's, that's happening. So they want to counteract the media circus, so they, they start publishing in, in that newspaper article that I mentioned that you know the jury needs to hold his breath and don't jump to conclusions, everybody, right? Okay. So what else is going on? So how is the body found? I mentioned that they found find the body in the well um, on or about January 10th. And now, did the body have, excuse me, did the body have any notable uh, causes of death, like violent marks or anything like that, or was that immaterial to the trial? Excellent point. So they do a coroner's inquest, and they have doctors examine the body. And remember, it's been sitting in the, in the, in the well, and I had the dates wrong. It was, January, it was December 22nd is when she goes missing, and she's found on or about January 4th. So she's you know, in the well for 10, 11 days. And after 10 or 11 days, it's cold out, so it's not frozen, but it's cold. Uh, they find uh, across her chest and her neck there is bruising. But could it, some of that could have been, and this comes into play later when you get into the, the trial, some of that could have been fishing her out of the well. And that's an important question. Did she jump in? Was she pushed? Was she killed and then dumped in the well? These are all good questions. Or was she strangled? Was she strangled? So there is evidence around her neck and her chest, and that's going to be disputed by the doctors. But the, what they do, what the Ring family does, and you know, today, how do we handle bodies? Back then, they didn't have funeral parlors. So they brought the body into the into the to the boarding house and to the lobby, if you will, of the boarding house. But there are so many people in the streets of New York that want to come see, that are outraged by what happened to this innocent young girl, that the, the community at large is coming to see the body. So they put the body outside on the third day. They put the body in the street. I don't know if it was on a table or how they displayed it. So all of New York is coming by this boarding house to see this body. This is prior to the trial. And, of course, Hamilton and Burr and, and Livingston are going to point out that this is inflaming the jury, and that's going to come up later. So this is this is the background. How these handbills are claiming this gets to motive that she was impregnated and then murdered by Weeks because maybe he doesn't want to marry her. So the, the body was swollen and badly bruised, and this is riveting pension, you know, public attention and the gory details of a body on public display. What else happens? So let's skip ahead to um, what else was going on in this time frame, and. It's a trick question for you, but uh, who else died basically that same year? She goes missing December 22nd, but in the middle of December of 1799, uh, a very famous, prominent American, the father of our country, uh, who passes uh, away. Washington. Washington. Yeah. Oh, my, Washington passes away. Right. So Washington died in December of, of 1799. So he dies basically the same week, uh, more or less same month that she goes missing so there's a you know people are mourning for washington there are all kinds of processions for him and we can talk about that i'll probably post on the website um they they, they in the same newspaper by the way which shows that her body that she went missing uh, on that same page they have the processional for washington so he's in washington he's in uh, virginia but nevertheless new york um has uh, has mourning pro- or morning uh, imagine it's the capital so yeah 
Right, so they have um, you know, all different professions line up, uh, lawyers and judges and uh, mechanics and uh, silversmiths and the, the, the Society of the Cincinnati. So all these different groups uh, you know, are commemorating and honoring Washington. So that's the mood of when, of when this occurs. And uh, here we go. So the trial is going to happen in, in March. And let me ask where, if you can have all these enormous crowds, what's the largest place that you can hold a trial in New York City? For me, it would, <laughs> no, I was going to be a, a jerk and say Grand Central Station. <laughs> no, a big, a big church, maybe. A big church, that's a good option. But you do trials, murder trials in churches, and you're right, probably some of the churches might have been equally big. But the quick answer is it was the old city hall. Oh, okay. Which, uh, which was the federal hall when, when New York City was the capital. Right, right. That's it, still there. It's still there, although they, they knocked it down, and it's a new building. Now it's the Treasury okay. uh, location. But this is Wall Street and Nassau Streets. That's where Congress met. That's where Washington was sworn in as the first president. So that's the location. It served back then as the city hall. It was also the uh, the courthouse. So this is the biggest building they can find where they're going to hold the trial. And on the day of the trial, and let me talk about the inquest. So the uh, prior to the trial, the coroner and the doctors examine the body, and they do not think that she was pregnant. So that may factor into motive. They do not think she was pregnant. But the, as soon as they uh, examine the body, they bring the body out to Levi Weeks, and uh, they, they ask him, do you recognize this body? And his answer is, where did you find that, the Manhattan will? Uh, the Manhattan well? So let's examine that real quickly. So the body's been found. They put the body on a horse, and they bring the body out to people who can identify it. So they bring it to Levi Weeks. And what does he say? He says, where, did, where was it found? Was it found in the Manhattan well? So put a little footnote there, so we'll come back to that. Okay. Uh, so he is arrested and he is put in jail to be held until the trial, which starts on March 31st. You know that uh, Ed has put his foot up? I mean, he took it literally, put a footnote, and he put his foot up on the table. Unbelievable. No, no. Unbelievable. Did they have a police department then? So they had magistrates, but the, the police were watchmen. They weren't really full-time police officers. Right. These are people who were day laborers who at night would be paid to you know, stay on the corner in a, in a watch box and did it differently at different places. Mm -hmm. But they were not full-time police who were skilled in doing investigations. These are uh, half-asleep watchmen um, you know, who have day jobs, so they did not have a fully trained police force. So it's really up to the prosecutor to do the investigation. Mm -hmm. So who was the prosecutor? Let's skip ahead. So the prosecutor is a very young 32-year-old prosecutor, and he's now going to be up against three of the brightest, most influential, and most well-respected lawyers in the history of the country. So he spends the time trying to assemble witnesses. So I'm going to ask you a question. In a million years, how many witnesses do you think wind up testifying? And we know exactly how many testify because we have the transcript. So how many witnesses do you think wind up testifying in this murder case? For the prosecutor? Altogether, because some of them are cross-examined. So take a wild guess. How many, how many witnesses can you imagine in a murder case of a single woman? I would say zero. A dozen. A dozen. Let's go higher. Manny, how many more witnesses can you imagine in this high-profile case? Wow, you know, I I I I thought it was less or not more. Uh, people just giving opinions. Well, the the problem is that there's not much hard evidence of what happened, so you're going to have a lot of character witnesses or gossip because everybody yeah, was talking well, about them say, secretly being married. Hearsay. You're going to yes. have character witnesses. You're also going to have the residents who live in the boarding house, right? So that's yeah, right there. There's 24 right there. <laughs> the owner. You've got uh, Levi Weeks and his uh, apprentice. His roommate. His family to 
witnesses. Right. Uh, so ultimately, it's going to be 55, imagine, 55 witnesses in this trial. Wow. So the trial starts on the 31st. It's going to run. Uh, as, as of that time in New York, this is the longest trial that it went. And when I tell you how long it was, uh, so it went basically three days. And it, each night, it would stop at around 1 or 2 o'clock at night, 1.55 one night. Uh, one in the morning. Night. So they went all day once that trial started. So let me talk about the jury. So um, they had a panel of jurors, and back then you had to be a property owner to be on the jury. It was only men. And uh, the, the defense team excludes, there was a pool of around 40. How many witnesses do you think, not witnesses, how many jurors do you think they exclude from the jury pool? Oh, God. 20. So they, okay, that's not bad. I guess they, they exclude 11, and the jury eventually gets selected of 12 jurors. Okay. And uh, prosecution puts on its case and as you mentioned it's a circumstantial case what does that mean circumstantial case means they don't have any direct evidence nobody saw her strangle her nobody saw levi week strangle emma sands nobody saw him throw her into the well nobody saw him carrying a body but this is all going to be based on weaving together by the prosecutor um, circumstantial evidence to tell a story is so this... what is the story that the prosecutor well, is going to try but to it's tell? a death penalty a possibility here say that again is the death penalty a possibility? Absolutely. The death penalty was real and uh, was common in okay. New York. So this is the prosecution's case. So the young prosecutor, 32 or th 33 years old, he staked the case on mainly two arguments. First, that the defendant had seduced the young woman and then murdered her to avoid marriage. And that's your point, Manny, about motive. Second, the prosecution's basing its case on the fact that the couple surreptitiously, according to some of the witnesses, left the boarding house together on the night that... That, uh, that she disappeared, and there are different names to call her, so I'm just going to call her by her nickname. Um, yeah, but the very fact that they found the body later doesn't mean she died the night she disappeared, so that should absolve Weeks. Yeah. She could have been uh, kidnapped for three days or something. Or committed suicide, or was or, yeah. or raped and killed, or, or, or... Now, Weeks, what does Weeks have to say about this time last yeah, week? Where was he? Alibi, yeah. yeah, where was he all this time? So the location of where the body's found has a connection to Weeks. Has a connection to Weeks. Uh-oh. And Weeks works for his brother to do the construction. He's a builder. He's a carpenter. So that's that's a, a good place to ditch a body. Also remember, earlier when I said put a footnote here, right, put a flag, what does Weeks say when the, the body is brought to him? What does Weeks say? Uh, oh, so that's where she went. That's where she was. That's where she was found, or was she found at the Manhattan Well? Because that's what it was known as, the Manhattan Well. So let me tell you where the Manhattan Well was. So uh, the, the boarding house uh, is Greenwich Village area, mm -hmm. um, and the, the the well was found about 15 minutes away by carriage. And this was going to be today. It's Spring Street, but back then it was a, a swampy area or a marsh. And today it's near Spring Street because that spring was where the marsh was. When they drained the marsh, it became Spring Street. So I know where that is. 
people who are from Manhattan, you know, there are tours that you can do about the murder mysteries and hauntings, and this this case features in some of those tours in Manhattan that you can do, the ghost tours. In fact, what's happening in the newspapers at the time is they're writing stories about how the devil is in New York, this mysterious disappearance, um, people are claiming that they see devils and they can see ghosts. So this is the environment of what's happening. Washington dies, uh, and uh, so that, that's the environment of the craziness that's taking place. So we, we talked about how the body was found. So let, let's also mention briefly about, and that, by the way, that Soho Tribeca is uh, the area now where that where that uh, that well is. So we talked about the victim. That's Juliana or El. El, El so you, but wait, wait a minute. When the when the body was found, Week says, "Is that where you, is that where you found her?" Or does he say? He says, "Was she found in the Manhattan well?" And the question is, how would he know that? So as the trial is getting underway, the, the, basically the entire city of New York, this is an exaggeration, wants to watch it, and they have to exclude people. Some of the commentators say that um, only one in four people who showed up that day was able to get into the courthouse because there were such a big crowds. And the crowds are chanting as he's brought in from the jail, crucify him, crucify him, uh, because you know this is a very high-profile case and public opinion is already made up, even though the trial hasn't happened yet. So we know the victim, we know the defendant. So pre-trial, what else? Now let's talk quickly about, um, we're now moving on to the trial. So the trial starts on March 31st, and we talked about how the body was on public display. So a lot of people, including potentially jurors, had seen the body out on display. And let me talk about some of the boarders. So uh, some of the other people who live in the building include the aunt and the uncle. And uh, there's going to be testimony that there's conflicting opinions about what her mental state was the day that, on the 22nd, when she leaves, and the relatives think that she left with Levi Weeks that night on December 22nd. Some think that she was happy as usual. Others think that she was melancholy. In fact, there's going to be evidence that she would take laud- laudanum. I don't know how you pronounce it. Yeah. I want to take a guess what L-A-U-D-A-M-U-M is. It's some kind of uh, 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 opium, and I think Sherlock Holmes used to take it, too. That's right. It was a very common medication that was used. It contains opium in it. also contains codeine. So they used it for depression, but they also used it for colds. In fact, let me just mention real quickly, um, and I'm going to shout out to one of my attorney friends. Um, I have a desktop calendar, and every day it gives another bit of history, another uh, Hamilton-related fact. So coincidentally, uh, I'm going to read to you from a letter, because it's on my daily calendar, a letter that Hamilton wrote to his wife, to Eliza. So Alexander writes it to Eliza. And this is um, August 12th of 1794. And Hamilton writes, my heart cannot cease to ache till I hear some more favorable account from you. If my darling child is better when this reaches you, persevere in the plan which made him so, made him better. If John, who is this child, and this is a letter that Hamilton's writing to his wife about the care of their son because the, the son is sick. So if John is worse, abandon the, the laudanum, which is this opium, and try the cold bath. And he goes on in this letter to say, let me just give one more sentence of it. He says, uh, you know, wrapping him in his head and uh, giving him a cold bath, dip his forehead, and, and then says, uh, give him additional medication by brandy, mixed with enough water to prevent it from taking away his breath. So it wasn't just, to, to this point, it wasn't just Elma Weeks, I'm sorry, El- Elma Sands, who's using uh, th- this medication, a lot of them. It's also Hamilton giving it to his son. So it was a very common medication. Yeah, common. But the okay, well, but that is just... by the defense that she's taking this medication because she's depressed and melancholy. Okay, so that was, uh, that's that's nullified. So that whole, that was uh, like, what, a whole day of testimony? Or was that just a small, small piece of the trial itself? Just to establish, just to eliminate uh, any uh, 
you know, eliminate any uh, negative state of the victim. So the prosecution, to your point, Manny, on the first day is trying to establish what happened on that night. So she leaves with Levi Weeks, but they don't see her leave with Levi Weeks. They just know that he was in the ante area, in the, you know, the lobby area of the, of the boarding house. Um, and also, But he also lived there, so he had reason to be there. He had reason to be there, so just because they overhear him talking doesn't mean that he left with her. Right. And he, he returns that night at around 10 o'clock. And there is testimony from other people in the boarding house that when he returns at 10 o'clock, he looks a little flustered, he looks a little pale, he looks like he's shaking, he looks like he's agitated. So he comes back, according to that testimony, and he's upset the day, the night that he returns at 10 o'clock. And remember, she leaves at around 8 o'clock. And one of the things that the prosecutor does, and both sets of attorneys study this, they take horse carriages and see how long will it take uh, if there isn't traffic. And back then, there probably wasn't traffic at 8 o'clock at night. Uh, so how long would it take to get from the boarding house to the well? And the answer is it's about 15 minutes. So 15 minutes there, 15 minutes back. So it's going to take about a half an hour to go there and back if you can just dump the body right into the well. And what is the alibi we talked about earlier? So what does Levi Weeks establish? And his, his answer is that he is with his brother planning the next day's building and construction, and there are other witnesses at that dinner. So his presence is accounted for if you're going to believe the developer that uh, Levi Weeks was having dinner with his family, with his brother and with the brother's family and with others in connection with their next day's events that they have planned. So he, he claims that he was not with, uh, with, uh, with Emma. He claims that he was with his brother and with others, and he's got witnesses to testify to that effect. So that's important. So what else comes into play for the evidence? And uh, let's go into a little bit more detail about uh, cross-examination. So as it turns out, let's talk about the defense. So we, we know the prosecution is going to say that, uh, that he was in love with her, or at least uh, she thought he was in love with her, that, that they'd secretly gotten engaged, and for whatever reason, either because he got her pregnant or because he wants to call off the engagement, he kills her and throws her into this wall. What is the defense position? defense position is, first of all, that there's an alibi, but also it's inconclusive if the body died because it was strangled or if, uh, or if Emma was killed or, or just jumped into the well. So we don't know exactly what happened that night. And there's also testimony about uh, that some witnesses from the prosecution uh, heard a, a cart or a, whatever you call it, a horse drawing a carriage, a carriage uh, leaving from the boarding house that night. And some witnesses think that they saw her with two men. But there's conflicting evidence, and one of the problems is that some of the witnesses are older and they're a little confused. And it's, it sounds like hearsay. Cross-examination, and I invite people, when the website is up, feel free, if you have nothing better to do, go and read some of the transcript. It's interesting to see some of the spellings and, and how that trial was conducted. But there was very effective cross-examination by the defense team. So let me pause real quickly, and let's cover some of the legal strategy. So normally... You have to be careful about making objections because you don't want to upset the jury and you want to flow of the evidence. But very early on, the defense does a couple things which are important. The first thing the defense does is they exclude. The first prosecution witness is going to be um, the husband and the wife who operate the, the house, the boarding house. So as soon as the first witness is called, the defense in, in, invokes the, the rule. So let me ask from watching TV and legal dramas, and Ed may have the answer in many, maybe you may also know, what does it mean when a lawyer at the beginning of a case when a witness comes to testify invokes the rule? What does that mean? I'm not a trial lawyer. Okay, so when you invoke the rule, you're saying, Judge, um, I can't have someone else sitting here listening to the testimony. So 
So the defense says if the husband's going to testify, we can't have the wife here listening, is that taints the testimony. So they invoke the rule, meaning that both the husband and the wife, the aunt and the uncle, can't be listening to each other's testimony. And that sort of raises in the mind of the jury, why are we excluding one member of the family when the other member of the family, what's so secret or what's so important to exclude uh, the husband and the wife, etc.? So that's, that's done at the very beginning. Another thing that the defense does, um, and this gets to objections to testimony, so let me ask you this question. What is hearsay? When we talk about hearsay evidence, what is hearsay evidence? Uh, unsubstantiated uh, testimony based on circumstance, not time and place. In particular third party from third parties that you haven't seen yourself, but you've heard. Oh, third party testimony. Yeah, it's not, it's, you're testifying to something you have not seen yourself, right. but you've heard other people talk about it. Yeah, which pretty much sucks. Right. And you're right, it has conventional meaning, you know, everyday meaning, and then it has a strict legal meaning in the federal rules of evidence and the Florida rules of evidence. But hearsay generally means things that aren't reliable. And for purposes of evidentiary standards and rules of evidence, hearsay is an out-of-court statement that's offered for the truth. So if um, you, know, you can testify about what you heard, but if it's testimony and you're offering it to say that this is actually true, what I heard was true, that's hearsay and it can be excluded. And there are a bunch of hearsay exceptions. So the first witness, remember, is, um, is Catherine Ring. She is the, the owner with her husband of the, of the, um, the everyone call it the, the boarding house. And two sentences into her testimony, you get your first objection because she is asked about what did Mrs. Sands, or the victim, you know, what did she say? They want to know what she said as she was leaving. And defense objects to say, no, this is hearsay. Because what, what, what the victim says prior to her leaving that night, if it's being offered for the truth of where she's going and what she's doing, that's an out-of-court statement. An out-of-court statement is hearsay. Because you can't cross-examine the victim. Right. You know, hearsay, you can test it, hopefully, by being able to do cross-examination. But if you can't cross-examine the, the victim or if someone isn't in court to cross-examine them, that's one of the problems with hearsay. So the prosecution tries to establish what, uh, what, what Mrs. Sands or what the victim, what Elma, uh, was talking about before she left on the, the defense objects. So this is interesting from a legal perspective. So the prosecutor is ready. He anticipated— So, so time out here. So are you saying that one of the— uh... One of the defining moments uh, for society, another um, reverberating through the society, is the very fact that hearsay evidence is not permissible in court; doesn't have any value. Is that is that can that cannot be said of this trial that America, for the first time, realizes that, or it's set as paradigm that hearsay evidence is not valid in court. No, that's. I think that's an old uh, standard before this. Well, before this trial. Yeah, I think so. Okay. I'm, that's, that's I'm right. asking the question. question Manny, and this was not a new concept of hearsay. Right. Okay, okay, cool. English law, and then this is going to come up. I'll, I'll describe it. So um, the defense team objects using this objection that hearsay should not be allowed because we can't cross-examine the victim because she's dead. And the prosecutor is ready. He anticipates that this objection will be made. So he jumps up and he says, Judge, this, uh, this hearsay should be allowed because there's a hearsay exception. And we know this from the trial transcripts. He refers to Leach's cases, which are cases from England, and that's how lawyers argue cases. They argue from precedents. So the prosecutor has a book of precedents. This is Leach's cases. He also has Skinner's reports, and he cites these cases that say you're allowed to have hearsay uh, when you're getting a dying declaration. Uh, because here, if someone knows that they're dying, that's going to be credible because, uh, A, they can't uh, – if, they, if they're think, thinking they're going to meet their maker, they're going to tell the truth. They're not going to lie as, you know, when they're dying. So the 
the defense who's making this hearsay objection, and we're not sure if it's Hamilton or Burr who says this, uh, is ready to actually criticize and challenge the cases that are being relied upon by the prosecution, and don't want to get too into the weeds on this. But what the, what the defense points out is that these are English cases, Mr. Prosecutor, that you're referring to. We're now under America. We shouldn't be relying on these old English cases. And as it turns out, that those cases that you're citing, Mr. Prosecutor, Mr. Colvin, actually support the defense position, which is there was no dying declaration, because when she left that night, she didn't know she was going to be dying. It's not a deathbed declaration. So so they exclude any testimony about what Ms. Ms. Sands or what Elmo was saying the night that she was leaving. So that potentially critical testimony about why she was leaving and why, why what she was planning to do that night gets excluded as hearsay. So that's important. That gets objected to at the very beginning of the, of the, of the case. Uh, what, what else is going on with the testimony? Well, you know, but Adam, if the case was an English case from before July 4th, 1776, then that was American law then. So here we're getting into weeds. So there's this concept of common ah. law. So because they hadn't yet developed... Is that a eureka moment or not? No, no. So these are things you learn in law school. So general principles of common law, even though they came from England, we inherited them. Right. This was going to be a debate, and the debate continues. How much of this old English common law becomes American law? And that's one of the arguments that Burr and Hamilton make. We're not sure who makes the argument. Uh, but one of those cases was a Scottish case, and they argued that, hey, that's a different legal system. Now in America, we're not obliged, obliged to follow uh, some of that old English law, which is reported in Skinner's reports and Leach's mm -hmm. cases. So what else is going to go on in the testimony? Okay, now ultimately the judge is deciding this. Whether he's going to, but he has to decide according to precedent. We're not going to allow the hearsay testimony. So that's an important moment early on in the case. Now, what else is the defense going to try to do? The defense is going to try to show that uh, there's testimony from other people who live in the, in the boarding house that although it is true that Levi Weeks shows affections and is uh, flirts with, with with Elma, he also flirts with one of the other women who lives in the boarding house. So, and they deny that he was going to get married to her or that he was secretly engaged. Also, as it turns out, and this you know, dovetails with some other things we've talked about, but yellow fever was a problem back then. And uh, interestingly, when you look at the chronology, that the mother who, or the, the cousin who owns the boarding house, um, when, when the yellow fever epidemic had happened earlier in that prior year, she left for about uh, two or so months to go out to the countryside because people realize that if they're not in the city, they're less likely to get the yellow fever. So what happened was when the owner of the boarding house, you know, who operates the boarding house, when she leaves to go out of town for a couple months, and it's going to be very interesting, when the cat's away, there may have been some activity between the boarders and the men and the women, and that's now going to be testimony that comes in from the defense that, lo and behold, this 22-year-old who everyone thinks is sweet and innocent, and they don't know exactly who's in whose room, but people that walk Jesus, in. She ends up being a loosey-goosey. So you always yeah, attack the character of the, of, the, of the victim. So the defense does, a, that's right, a character assassination that uh, if she did have a relationship with Levi Weeks, she had multiple relationships. In fact, she may have had a relationship with the owner of the boarding house whose wife was away for, the, for two months during that yellow fever period. Ah, uh, there you go. So how is the defense going to describe and come up with an excuse for how Levi Weeks, when the body is brought to him to identify the witness and to identify the body, how does he know where the body was found? And they put on testimony that uh, it took a while for the body to be brought down for them to identify, but other people were running back and forth, and there was all kinds of commotion. So he overheard it from people who came to the boarding house prior to the body being delivered with the police. So he was already listening to 
innuendo and gossip. What he had heard from others, that doesn't mean that he knew in advance where the That's body right. was. That's right. It's just he's repeating what he'd already heard that other people had heard. Yeah, which is no, uh, the normal human reaction. That's right. And remember, he's got very airtight alibi witness. So what else can I tell you? We talked about hearsay. We talked about to use English law, to use American law. Let, let's talk about that well real quickly, and we could go into a lot of detail here. But the well was built by the Manhattan Bank Company, which today, the Manhattan Bank Company, want to take a guess what the Manhattan Bank Company is today? Chase. Manhattan. Chase Manhattan. Manhattan Bank. So Chase Manhattan Bank, which started as the Manhattan Bank Company, was actually doing wells and doing piping, but had in its charter the ability to do loans, and that becomes Manhattan Bank. Who do you think started that Manhattan Bank Company? Something Chase. Hamilton. <laughs> Almost, but who's the opposite of Hamilton? Burr. Burr? Burr. So oh, the man. Manhattan Bank Company was founded by Aaron Burr. Oh, Damn. Wow. Think about that for a second. Shh. So you have one of the attorneys defending Levi Weeks, right? Uh, the well was built by the brother of Levi Weeks, and the company that built the well was or funded the by well. Alexander, not Alexander Hamilton, but by, uh, by Burr. And we could spend a lot of time. Maybe so there was no major uh, issues about conflict of interest. Oh, I guess it's not a conflict because you're representing the defendant, so it's not a conflict. Today there would be, and it's an interesting question. Today there would be all kinds of uh, disputes about the conflict. And also remember that Levi Weeks' brother is going to be building Hamilton's Grand, Hamilton's house up in northern Manhattan. So that's some of the the background about the attorneys. I said, give me 15 minutes so I can talk about. Um, some of the postscript. So what, what, what winds up happening, you've got 55 witnesses get paraded in and out. Uh, let me talk about the jury real quick. Uh, at 1 o'clock at night, they did not allow the jurors to go home. They considered the jurors to be sequestered. They almost treat the jurors like prisoners. So the night of the first night of the trial, the jury sleeps in the upstairs of City Hall, and there's a big picture of Washington, a big portrait of Washington, a famous portrait. They sleep under that portrait. The trial starts early the next morning, continues again until 12, 1, almost 12 o'clock at night, and this trial goes on without interruption uh, until at the end. And here, let me skip ahead. So go again to the website. You'll be able to read all the, all the details. Uh, the prosecutor says to the judge, Your Honor, we're ready to do the closing arguments, but I've been awake for 44 hours straight. I'm falling asleep. Let's continue tomorrow morning on the third day of the trial, and uh, everyone can then come back refreshed. And what does the defense team decide to do? It's 1 o'clock at night. And the they want to, they want to try it right now. Ed, what do you think? So Manny says, let's try it. Yeah, they want a lethargic closing statement. They want they want the prosecutor to be weak at the knees. And he's already admitted that he hasn't slept. So hell, if I were Hamilton, I said, no, give your closing argument right now, sir. We got no time. We've taken enough time. Yeah, that's a good. All right, I go with that. I'll agree with Manny for the first time today. today. And they say, Your Honor, that uh, we will rest on what we have. We'll allow the judge to give an instruction. And they think that they have put on enough of a defense pulling the strand. Oh, so no closing argument. Whoa, that's bold. So, and what the judge does, it's 1 o'clock at night. Everyone wants to get out of there. Um, the judge gives a instruction, and the judge says that uh, based upon the testimony that we've heard, the judge says, doesn't tell the jury what they should do. The judge just says what he would do. The judge says, I and the others who were presiding on the case back then, they didn't just have one judge. Uh, they have others who work with the judge. But the judge says the court is of the opinion that the defendant must be acquitted because the case has not been proven. Right. So that's what the judge instructs. The jury How can the judge say that? Five minutes, and what does the jury do? They acquit him. Jury acquits. So but why, oh, why is it that a judge can say that? Prejudicial instruction from the judge. 
Oh, my God, that's like a, a total racket. Why was that accepted practice? How can the judge give an opinion like that? So today there are circumstances where if the prosecutor has not proven their case, the judge can intervene and take it away from the jury. But what this judge did is the judge... Isn't that opinion? But isn't that opinion? He told the jury what he would do. So I agree with you, Manny. It's very unusual what the judge did, but it's not unheard of where sometimes a judge will say, no, this case cannot go to the jury because the prima facie case has not been established. So I want to talk about the postscript. What happens after this very high-profile case where the community at large was up in arms because they thought that this guy should be prosecuted and convicted? So uh, here's just some very interesting, and we're not going to have time to go into all the details, but um, what winds up happening to Brock Holst Livingston, who is one of the, you know, the third attorney in the case? And the quick answer is he gets appointed by Jefferson as a Supreme Court justice. So this is the same Livingston that's related to other Livingstons we've talked about. The Livingston family from New Jersey is a very prominent family. During the Revolutionary War, the governor of New Jersey was Governor Livingston. So Livingston becomes, and he was an attorney who worked with Hamilton, by the way, earlier on the Rutgers case, the Rutgers versus Waddington case. And people can go to the Statues of Stories website or listen to the podcast where we talked about that important case that Hamilton worked on, and it was with Livingston that the two worked on that case. Uh, what happens to the prosecutor? His name was Cadwalder David Colden. So he founded a law firm. Say it again? He founded a law firm, Cadwalder, Wickersham, and Taft. I don't know. It's possible. But eventually he becomes the mayor of New York. So he moves on to greater things. We'll talk later about what happens to Burr. But one thing I want to mention is that when Burr returns from France, Burr... Um, remember, he becomes vice president. This is the year 1800 is when this election happens. Yep. Uh, and this is the election that gets um, Jefferson to become president. And this is the election where Burr, Burr becomes vice president. So after the trial, you have this important election, and Burr becomes the vice president. We talked about Burr goes through a couple trials. And uh, after he returns from Paris, many years later, he becomes, let me ask it as a question, what kind of law does Burr can't find anyone to work with? And uh, there's a lot of outrage against Burr. He's not, he's not very popular anymore. Now, what kind of law does Burr practice? Criminal law. All right, the criminal law is a good answer. Burr winds up becoming a divorce family lawyer. And oh, no. I was going to, you know, I, it really sucks that I kept, I was quiet. But since my, my son practices it, I was going to say that. A divorce family yeah, law? That, yeah, divorce law is, is the most isolating law there is because once you practice it, no attorneys will touch you because you probably defended a friend of theirs, a wife of theirs. Oh, come on. Yeah, you become like the bridge too far. It really is a problem. There, there is truth to that, that the other lawyers in New York didn't want to do divorce law. They sort of looked down on it and because uh, Burr has problems making money. He winds up not only doing family and divorce law, but uh, you know, making innovations in that field. He becomes a prominent family law divorce lawyer, and he winds up living until 1836. Hamilton dies in 1804, and everyone knows that the two of them get into a very famous duel. But uh, Burr has a long, productive life after that. So we talked about the prosecutor. Let's talk about some of the others. So one of the lawyers who winds up working with Livingston is um, Washington Irving. So let me ask this question. Who is Washington Irving? He was a writer. He wrote uh, Sleepy Hollow and uh, The Headless Horseman. The Headless Horseman. So Washington Irving, who becomes I'm impressed. a famous author, is probably the first American to be recognized in Europe as someone who can actually write. So Washington Irving <laughs> writes murder mysteries and writes horror stories, and he works for Livingston's firm. He's a, he's a law clerk and then becomes a lawyer uh, after the trial. Uh, by the way, has anyone ever heard the name Gotham? What city does Gotham refer to? Manhattan. New York. Big city. New York. So it's Washington Irving who comes up with the label Gotham for New York City. And uh, by the way, Washington Irving also right later writes for the New York Evening Post. And who founds the New York Evening Post? 
Hamilton. Hamilton. So Washington Irving winds up working for Hamilton's newspaper later on. Uh, the name Gotham comes from one of the books that uh, Washington Irving writes. Uh, but what about there's a New York basketball team? Knickerbockers. Knickerbockers. So that's a book that was written by Washington Irving uh, where he comes up with the term. Actually, that's his pseudonym. He, he writes a history of New York uh, where he claims he was writing it under the pseudonym Diedrich Knickerbocker. And those are the Knicks today. New Yorkers can be referred to as Knicks. What about the judge in the case? And let me give a quick aside that at the end of the trial, the, the, the cousin, so the family members who are convinced that Levy Weeks is, is guilty, uh, they basically yell out and they curse Hamilton and the lawyers. And this is what they say. They say, this is in the transcript, if he dies a natural death, I shall think there is no justice in heaven. So the family is not happy that Levi Weeks gets acquitted. And what winds up happening later on to the judge in the case is that uh, he disappears in 1829 and is never found again, the judge. Oh. And let me also talk about one of the other witnesses in the case. So one of the other men who live in the boarding house, his name was Croucher. And later on, Croucher marries a widower who has a 13-year-old daughter. And Croucher asked the 13-year-old daughter to come help him pack up his bags from the boarding house so he's going to move in with his new wife. And unfortunately, Croucher uh, rapes and does not kill, but he rapes that 13-year-old girl. He gets convicted. So people can speculate what really happened. And a very plausible explanation is that Croucher, who was one of the other tenants or boarders in the boarding house, who only months later rapes a 13-year-old daughter, telling her that if you say anything, the same thing's going to happen to you as happened to yep. uh, to Elma, she, who was found in a well. So keep your mouth shut. So this is the guy, he was referred to as Mad Croucher, uh, and he later has a criminal history. So that that is my hunch on what actually happened to Elma Sands, which means that Hamilton and this legal defense team did the right thing in defending and getting and, and vindicating um, you know, our criminal defendant. Well, I'll be, uh, that's a perfect way to end the story. That is really, that is really, yep. what's most tragic is the fact that Hamilton didn't live a full life. Because <laughs> it's really a remarkable story, what he's done for the country as a soldier, as an attorney, as a treasury official. Yeah. And to die unceremoniously in a duel well, and for the jerk. the newspaper and he said, I'll be back this afternoon. And he didn't come back. Unbelievable. And so the, Let me give you some more ends that people can, or threads that people can go to the website, and maybe we'll talk more about them later on another night, but more things to look forward to if you go to the website, these newspaper articles and other interesting coincidences, why this is such a famous case. So what else can I tell you? So who is Edgar Allan Poe? The Raven. Baltimore writer. Yeah. Of so one of the, in fact, Edgar Allan Poe is famous for the first mystery writer who writes detective stories. And his famous detective series are the the Dupin, D-U-P-I-N, and I don't try to pronounce French, but the, the one of his short stories was The Mystery of uh, Marie Roger, and his detective is uh, Monsieur Dupin. There are elements, a lot of authors and professors think, that some of Edgar Allan Poe's stories borrow plate, uh, plot elements from the Manhattan murder mystery of the year 1800. Mm -hmm. In fact, I, I'm going to be quoting from Arthur Conan Doyle and T.S. Eliot and Mark Twain were all fans of Poe's detective stories, and a lot of his themes were coming from this murder mystery. What else can I tell you? Philip Freneau, and you're not going to know this name, but people who focus on the Revolutionary War period, he is a famous poet, Philip Freneau, and he's referred to as the poet of the American Revolution. He was a schoolmate of uh, Madison's at Princeton or the College of New Jersey, and Freneau also worked for newspapers, and he wrote, and you can read it when I post it online, he wrote a very famous poem 
about this case. So it carries over into popular culture. So you're going to get to read Philip Furneaux's, I won't do it online, I'm sorry, I won't try to read it to you because I won't do it justice, but people are going to be able to read that poem by Philip Furneaux. The last thing I want to mention, because we're all Hamilton fans, there is a song in the musical. And unless you're a really big musical fan, you won't know the song, but I'll refer to it. So the song in the musical that refers to this case is the song Nonstop, which is the last song at the end of Act One. And let me just read you two or three lines from the song. So what this song from the musical says is Hamilton begins by singing, Gentlemen of the jury, I'm curious, bear with me. Are you aware that we're making history? Hamilton goes on to sing, according to the musical, this is the first murder trial of our brand new nation. And then Aaron Burr interrupts. Of course, Aaron Burr is sung by Leslie Odom, and Hamilton is sung by Lynn manuel So Burr interrupts to say, our client Levi Weeks is innocent. Call your first witness. Whoa. So, so this murder case is in poems, it's in popular culture, it's in murder mysteries, and it's in the Hamilton musical. So read all about it on statutesandstories.com. And as always, it's a pleasure spending an hour with uh, with everyone who's listening. Thank well, you very much. Well, thank you very much. That was uh, that was the that was the entire year of eighteen hundred. Was uh, in, yeah, pretty exciting. Pretty, uh, it's like uh, it was like subtle, uh, sophisticated legal practicing going on sure. with all the tacky and gossip innuendo in the middle, and in the end, uh, the probably co- justice was done. Yeah, justice was done exactly. Well, that was so fantastic. All right, well, well, we'll be talking soon. Um, Thank you. Well, next week we're going to have Mark Newman, uh, Adam's cousin, who will be talking about the uh, four presidents on Mount Rushmore, Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and Teddy Roosevelt. So, uh, basically, Alan, uh, we're going to have a perfect song for our segue, which, since we won't be here next Monday, this song is by Pink Floyd, Wish You Were there. Stay free, my friends. This is the Statues and Stories live with Alan Adam Adam Levinson. Take care.